Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, please. The 25th chapter. There are several ways, a couple of ways, probably more than that, but at least two ways that you can divide this chapter up. I'll give you one way. is uh, the praise delivered to the nation, verses 1 through 5. The blessings for all nations during the kingdom of the millennium, verses 6 through 8. And Israel rejoicing after waiting. You know, waiting, sometimes the patience that we have will bring about rejoicing at the end of the trial. And then, that's verse 9, and then verses 10 through 12 is Moab and Israel's enemies are judged. Maybe a little simpler way, I have it this way. We'll title the whole chapter, The Lord Will Preserve His People. The whole chapter. And then three little divisions. I'll try to do it this way. Verses 1 through 3, The Ruined City. Verses 4 and 5, The Refuge. Verses 6 through 12, The Feast. So the Ruined City, the Refuge, and the Feast. You'll find that will make good sense in this chapter as well. But we'll take it verse by verse and then come back and try to deal with it uh, also in this, uh, with this last outline that I gave you. So we see here in the chapter 25 a character of the kingdom that will be in the future, the millennial kingdom. Those three divisions are outstanding uh, that I gave you, the ruined city and the refuge and the feast. But in verse 1 it says, O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt Thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city an heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nation shall fear thee. And doubtless this this refers to Babylon. And Babylon is used also to represent all of those cities and all those people that are in opposition to God. We know that God will destroy Babylon, the city of Babylon, in the future, in the book of Revelation, in the Great Tribulation period. And we're talking about a section that deals with a future aspect of things uh, We don't find all these things in chapter 25, 6, and 7 fulfilled until, in fact, we don't find that history has any fulfillment of them that still yet looks to the future when all this will be finally fulfilled. So we find a ruined city. We said in the previous chapter, I believe it was, that sometimes a city represents not just a certain city, a particular city, but it represents... uh, Cities in general that are in opposition to God. And so we find the very first section here is the ruined city. It says, For thou hast made, in verse 2, of a city and heap. God has a way of bringing down the defenses. Of a defense city, a ruin. And it says, A palace of strangers to be no city, it shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee, the city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. And then we find in verses 4 and 5, the refuge. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones uh, is 
as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in the dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. So God's people have a refuge during that time. Before we go on with uh, the next section, let's try to cap off what we've talked about in the cities and the refuge. And then we'll get to the feast beginning with verse 6 because it says, uh, In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto the people of all the people a feast. And we'll get into that section in just a moment. What do we have uh, concerning this ruined city? We have met this image before in chapter 24, verse 10 and verse 12. And we've noted it that the city is a generic term for all cities. And Isaiah lived in an agricultural world of towns and villages and large cities or city-states. And they were places of power and wealth. And in times of war, the people fled to the walled cities for protection. But God says he's going to break down their defenses. It doesn't make any difference how strong men might think they are in their defenses. God has a way of breaking them down if he sees fit to bring judgment. The great cities of the world will offer no protection when God pours out his wrath upon all nations. You'll find that he will pour out his wrath upon all nations in Revelation 2.19 and 16 verse 19. And these rebellious cities, by the way, if you want those two references, you might write them down. Revelation 2.19 and 16.19. And then the rebellious cities will be forced to acknowledge the greatness of God and give their homage to Him. You know, wouldn't it be much better for people, human, humankind in general, and men and women of this earth, people of this earth, to give homage to the Lord on a free basis and a voluntary basis and, and a, a, by making a decision themselves rather than to have God to bring them to the place that finally they will be forced to acknowledge His power. This is a day and age of grace. That will be a day and age of judgment. And there's a great deal of difference. There's a whole lot of difference. It's a, there's a whole lot of difference in having the privilege of doing something than being forced to do it. I'd rather have the privilege to do something than be forced to do it. Even humanity itself chooses that route. In other words, do you like to be forced to do something you don't want to do? Okay. But if you have the privilege to worship God and the opportunity to worship God in a day and age of grace, and it's for your good now and hereafter, and you can voluntarily, lovingly, willingly do that, and then instead of, as the Bible says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, there will be a time that that will be true too. And then we come to this uh, second section. We've already read this, but I'd like to talk about that refuge in a moment. Isaiah paints two pictures of the buffeting of a storm and the beating down of a burning sun in the desert where travelers can go for refuge. And they see a huge rock and find a refuge in it. And God is spoken of as that rock. In Deuteronomy and Psalms and various other places, I can give you the references later if, you, if you'd like them. But he's spoken up as the rock. And he will be a refuge for his believing people during that terrible day of the Lord. This is a section that deals with that terrible day of the Lord when God judges. And uh, it's in the future, yet in the future, during and end, at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, he will be a refuge for them during that period of time, for those that believe in him. 
Remember, God says he has a place that the woman can hide from the onslaughts during the tribulation period, Israel, and there will be a protection for God's people. I know there will be martyrs that will be, there will be people killed because of their faith, but there will still be, God is going to see his people uh, and have for them a refuge in the time of the storm that comes. It's not only true that God will have that for them, but God is a refuge for His people now. In fact, Isaiah 32, when you get over to 32 verse 1, we have it referring to Jesus. If you want to look at 32 verse 1 and 2, just turn your Bible over there a few pages from where we're studying. It says in Isaiah 32 verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. We don't have a king reigning in righteousness now. And princes shall rule in judgment. And then look at this. And a man, referring to Jesus, and a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock. Remember, he's referred to as a rock for refuge, as a great rock in a weary land. A heavy rock, a sturdy rock, a place for refuge. The psalmist said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Under the rock there's shade, there's shelter, there's coolness. Have you ever been under a huge rock when the sun was beating down? You reach up and touch that rock and it's as cool as it can be. Because it has absorbed the heat of the sun as it has come and it's cool underneath. And you have the shelter of that rock. Well, the heat of wrath fell upon Jesus. And you and I are in a very comfortable place of refuge underneath Christ's uh, shelter. And uh, if we'll realize just how much uh, there's a whole sermon on that, we wouldn't have time to, wouldn't have time, of course, to to deal with it. But there's a whole sermon on uh, Christ being the rock. He's a he's a sheltering rock in the time of a storm. A man shall be as a hiding place. In Christ we're sheltered from the wind and tempest of God's wrath. In Christ we're sheltered from the broken law. We've broken God's law. In Christ we're sheltered from God's holiness. God's holiness would burn us up. We're sheltered from Satan's assaults. He also protects us from all the storms of life. He is with us during our domestic problems, our physical and material problems, our trials and temptations, our internal problems. And we find that he's not only a shadow of a great rock, but he's rivers of water. There's rivers of water in a dry place and a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. When you think of rivers of water, you think of great excellence. You think of abundance. You think of freshness. You think of freeness. The dry place of humanity is where we need these rivers of water. The dry place of sin when there's emptiness. The dry place of outward circumstances that we cannot do anything about. You know, there's some things you just can't do anything about. You have to accept them, go on, and ask for God's drink of fresh water during that wilderness journey. And we're to drink of the waters that are provided because they're near, they're free, and they're satisfying, and they're life-giving. Remember in the Old Testament when Moses struck the rock, that rock came forth abundantly, and everyone was free to drink of it. And there was sufficiency for all. And there was satisfaction for all. And that's exactly what the Lord is to every one of us in our trials. 
You know, if we just get our eyes on the Lord in the midst of our trials, instead of on ourselves and on our circumstances, because God is greater than circumstances, and God is greater than our trials, and He can overcome each and every one of them. But let's get back to this. And Isaiah paints these two pictures of the buffeting storm and the beating down of a burning sun in the desert, and we find that uh, God is the refuge for His people, not only in the day of trouble, day of the Lord in the future, but He is our refuge today. And the victory shouts of the enemy will disappear. The way of heat vanishes when a cloud covers the sun. And so God is able to make, make them disappear. And God cares for His own in times of trial and judgment. Do you know God cares for you and I when we have trial and judgment? There was trial, there was judgment on the old world, and he kept Noah and his family alive through the flood. And he cared for them, and he delivered them. And he guarded Israel when his judgments fell on Egypt. Remember when God's judgments fell upon the, the land of Egypt? It says, and when there was darkness over the land, it says God made a difference between it. God will sever between the Egyptian and his people. And when there was darkness over the land, all the land, it says the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And it wasn't just candles they had or some imitation light. God made a difference and He made light in their dwellings and He made darkness over the rest of the people. And there are other things that came, other judgments that came. And God uh, severed between and made a difference between His people and the world. And so the Lord is able to do that. And he protected believing Rahab and her family when Jericho fell. Remember? The whole city was under the curse. Jericho is a city of the curse. And, and judgment came upon it. And God saved Rahab and her house because she believed in God. And she let that scarlet cord out the window, symbolical of the blood of Christ. And you know that scarlet cord runs all the way from Adam onto the Genesis. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And that's what saves us from the wrath and judgment of God, is that scarlet line. If you're under the blood, you're in a pretty protected place. The children of Israel were protected when the death angel came because they were under the blood. And they had the blood applied to the lintel and the door and side posts of their, or to the side posts of the door. And... Uh, Thus, everyone inside, every firstborn inside those houses where the blood was applied was safe. And, and the death angel did not smite the firstborn of those houses because of the blood. And by the way, I've used this before to explain to you. The blood is the only thing that made the difference. That was the only thing that made a difference. There could have been a son in one of those houses. Maybe he's a teenage boy and he says, Dad... You know, you plied the blood, but I'm afraid that's not going to do. He was still safe because he was under the shelter of the blood. There would another be another lad in there, and he would be on, in another house, and he'd say, Dad, I know you applied the blood, and I know I'm safe and secure. In other words, security of the believer. He believed in it, and the other one didn't. But both of them were just as safe. You may be here tonight, and you're a child of God, and you're, you're saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and you put your faith and trust in the Lord, and you may fear that that's not enough, but it is enough. And you may be here tonight and you have the full assurance that it's enough, and it is enough, but it's enough for both of you. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about the Scripture. It doesn't 
take into consideration all of our emotions and all of our feelings and all of our lack of faith and all of our ups and downs and whether we at this moment or the next moment have the full assurance of of faith that we should have. But it takes into consideration what God has done to purchase us and to pay for us and to keep us safe and secure. And you know, I'm glad that I'm glad that the assurance is in Him and not in me, aren't you? Aren't you glad that the assurance is in what God has done and not in how you feel about it? Maybe you, your faith is not very strong. Maybe you, maybe you just have doubts and fears and you're tossed and turned and you've heard so many doctrines taught and you say, well, that people, those people over there, they teach, you know, if you do this or that or the other, you've got to be saved again. Well, you need to repent again. That's true. And you need to restore fellowship. But that doesn't mean your soul is lost. But to have fellowship with God, certainly it takes that to be in fellowship with God. But you know what the Lord, if the Lord, the Bible, the Bible says salvation is the Lord, right? Salvation is of the Lord. So if He saves you, the Bible also says what the Lord doeth, He doeth forever. If He saves you, He saves you forever. He doesn't save you momentarily or to to let you sink and drown the next moment. Like old Peter, he was in the water, you know, and he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. He said, Lord, save me. Well, he, he, Jesus stretched out his hand and he pulled him into, into the boat. He did save him, didn't he? Took him on in. Jesus could walk on the water and so could Peter. But Jesus took him on in safety into the boat. And they were safe at the land where they went. But it depended upon the Lord to do the saving when Peter cried out to him. Well, anyway, what we're talking about. The refuge. The refuge. He preserved the faithful remnant when Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity. This faithful remnant came out. And we find the evidence of it in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And throughout the centuries, he has kept his church in spite of the attacks of Satan. He's kept his church. We find that God will keep his church in spite of the attacks of Satan. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he will deliver his church from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. Remember the Thessalonians says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, even Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Delivered us from the wrath to come. Delivered in the past tense. Are you worried about the future? Well, we may be worried about the present and things that are happening, but we have no need to fear too much about the future. Because God's going to take care of us. The Bible says in John chapter 5 verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not, that's future, come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So it's that future. That word condemnation there is that future great judgment or crisis. And that's what it's referring to. And it assures that we are exempt from that judgment to come. That God's people are exempt from the great white throne judgment. That there will stand before that great white throne judgment the fearful and the unbelieving and all whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. And they shall be judged, every man according to their works. Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 10 on down. So, you can rest assured that 
You know, I like exemptions. If you're exempt from something, you don't have to fool with it. You, it doesn't concern you that much anymore. It's already past deal with you. It's already accomplished. It's already finalized. And that's where the believer stands. Christ has finalized that day of judgment for you and I because He took that judgment of, of our sins upon Himself. Now, if your sins and mine were judged in Christ, in the person of Christ, do you think God is going to hold you accountable for the same sins that Christ took upon Himself as your sin bearer? That'd be double pay, wouldn't it? And God is a just God, and He's not going to exact the judgment for the same sins that Jesus bore on the cross. But that when the day of the Lord comes to this godless world, God will see to it that this Jewish remnant that's so much indicated in this passage of Scripture, uh, will be preserved. It says, Hide yourselves for a little while until His wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of His dwelling dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21. So He says, Hide yourselves until this... A little Hide yourselves till this wrath, wrath of God is overpassed. Let's look in the section now dealing with the feast, beginning with verse 6 in our text. Isaiah 25, verse 6, if you will. And it takes us verse 6 through 12. And for the, for in the Old Testament, for the Old Testament Jew, a feast was a picture of the kingdom age when the Messiah would reign over Israel and all nations of the world. So a feast was a picture of that. Doesn't mean it was that, but a picture of that. Look at verse 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast. Now look, this, is, this, this mountain is the center of the millennial government, the place of God's presence in Israel in those days. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on... The leaves well refined. In other words, a very luxurious feast. A full feast. A feast that will be a blessing to not only His people, but it says, make unto all people. So those that participate in that feast in the millennium will be certainly a blessed people. Israel would enter into her glory and the Gentiles would come to Zion to worship the Lord. We've already pictured other Gentiles being saved along with the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period. Remember we spoke of, who was it? Egypt and Assyria, that God would call them His people. We gave you a text on that a few verses, chapters back. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 24, it says, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Egypt, my people. Always known as the world and those opposed to God. Blessed, it says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. The work of my hands. And it says, And Israel, mine inheritance. He says, I'm going to have other people, Gentile nations, along with my own people, that will be blessed in that day of the millennium. And so Israel would enter into her glory, and the Gentiles would come to Zion to worship the Lord. Their scripture references multiplied that I could give you even in the book of Isaiah. I'll give you 55 verses 1 through 5 and 60 verse 1. 
And when Jesus used the image of the feast, in Matthew 8, 11, and Luke 13, the people knew he was speaking about the promised kingdom when he used the image of the feast. And the food that we eat only sustains life now, but at this feast, death itself will be conquered. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's read on down. In verse 7, He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What is the face of the covering that is spread over all nations? Death. He will swallow up death in victory. Look at that. Verse 8. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. In other words, death and the need for tears will be done away with at the end of the millennium. Because God says there will be no more death and there will be no more tears. Remember that uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54 that death is swallowed up in victory. That's what it says in Revelation 20. Let me give it to you. Revelation 20 and verse uh, 14. Notice what it says here. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's the end of death. Revelation 21 verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. That'll be a day. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you imagine the time that there will be no more death? That's what God says. In our text, remember what it says. He will swallow up death in Isaiah 25, verse 8, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke rebuke of His people shall He take away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Every tear wiped away. Every broken heart. Remember, Jesus said He came to heal the brokenhearted. Every broken heart is healed. Every stream of sorrow will be ended. Every spring of grief will be dried up. Tears of misfortune, like Job. And he had some misfortunes, didn't he? Lost his all that he possessed and all of his family and his health almost in a day's time. His wealth and his health. And his wife turned against him says, Curse God and die. Job, do you still maintain your integrity? I tell you, that would be one of the hardest hits a person could take. And then tears of misfortune. And then tears of poverty like Lazarus. Think of Lazarus. Poor old Lazarus sat at the rich man's gate covered with sores. But when he died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments, the Bible says. He said, send Lazarus to my brothers. Father Abraham says, they won't believe, though one rose from the dead. He says, if you'll just send him back to my brothers, they'll believe. And they didn't believe, though one rose from the dead, did they? And people still don't believe, though one rose from the dead. And he'll, tears of poverty, tears of misfortune, tears of bereavement like Mary and Martha and the widow of Nain, tears of sympathy and mercy like Jeremiah and Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem, tears of persecuted innocence, You know, don't you hate to be persecuted when you've done nothing wrong? Sometimes we cry about it. We shed tears, say, well, why did this have to happen to me? I did no harm, no wrong. I tried to do what was right. 
Have you been through that? I guarantee you preachers go through it quite often. And tears of penitence, of repentance, tears of disappointment and neglect, tears of yearning for things to be right when you know it just has to come from God or it won't be. It says, and there shall be no more death. Now it touches every heart. Now it breaks every family circle. Now it enters every home. Almost every one of us are familiar with it. All of us have loved ones that are gone on. Now the land is filled with cemeteries. Now hearses are on every hand. Now lanes are full of funeral processions. Now the stone cutters are busy. The funeral homes are short-handed. The papers abound in obituaries. Did you see just in the paper today where Jody and Cowboy Stokes' son died? And I just visited um, Jody up in the rest home yesterday, care center yesterday. Let me see, no. Yesterday was what, Tuesday? Monday. I visited there Monday. And she's just, you wouldn't recognize her. She's nothing but skin and bones, will not eat. She's just lying there waiting to die. Talk about tears and funerals. Now death is on the right hand and on the left. Now it's before us, it's behind us, it's around us, it's beneath us. It's in all seasons. It's in all times and places. And now our call may come at any moment. Someone says, Preacher, you're not talking about me. Yes, I am. Now the physicians and hospitals can't stop it, but death itself shall die. And it says, Shall be swallowed up in victory, and there will be never another dying bed and never another new-made grave, because death shall be no more. I could go on and on. I have a whole lot of stuff I could say. Maybe better say some of it. Neither sorrow. I'm taking Revelation 21, verse 4. It says, Now heartaches and griefs are numberless. Now no escape from shadows of sorrow. Now every heart knows something of bitterness. Now martyrs are found where no faggots are fired. Now heavy hearts bleed in secret. Now cold shadows fall on sensitive souls. Now chilling frosts blight flowers of peace. But there will be no more sorrow on God's tomorrow, will there? Now crying. Now we come into life with a cry. We live in a world of wailing. We go out of life with a groan. There are cries of pain and passion. Now there are heard cries of fear and strife. Now we know cries of wrong and oppression. Now we hear cries of want and harm and danger. Now we listen to cries of torn affection and blasted hopes. Now we cry from weariness and disability. Now we cry because of suffering and death. And then it says, neither shall there be any more pain. Neither shall there be any more pain. I wonder how many people I look out here tonight and say, that there's some pain in your body. You say, well, there's a pain in my arm. There's a pain in my neck. There's a pain in my back. There's, I'm tired of sitting in this pew because it hurts. You know, really? Uh, when, I, when Brother Randy preaches, I sit over there and, and my back hurts and I twist and turn, run and share, share and get aggravated with me, I'm sure, because I put my foot up on the, the bench and then I'll take it down and then I'll turn that way and it's not comfortable. And I know uh, I'm in more ease tonight because I'm standing than you are being seated. I know what it is. But it says, neither, more, neither shall there be any more pain. Pain of aches and illness. Pain of weariness and toil. Some of you toiled hard all day and you're, you're really tired. And pain of parting when you part from a loved one or friend. Pain of repentance. Pain of temptation. 
and pain of persecution. And it says, For the former things are passed away. All that can be removed is gone, and all that is eternal will abide. There will be a time that that will be true. Look back in our text, and we have just a few more comments with this chapter. Chapter 25 of Isaiah. It says in in verse 9, And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him. Someone says, I don't have time to wait for all these things to happen. They're going to say in that day, we've waited for Him. We've been patient, and patience has paid off. The Bible teaches that in the book of James. It teaches that in the book of Hebrews. That we with much patience shall enter the kingdom of God. And He will save us, and by the way, through much tribulation. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Israel will look forward to a time that it's all over. And this redemption has come. And you and I. And then here's the final word of concerning the ruin of Moab, verses 10 through 12. And Moab rep- represents all who opposed God as she opposed Israel in her past. Remember, Moab was a great opposer of Israel in the past. Moab was one of those cursed nations. Remember the Moabites? The Ammonites and the Moabites came from the two illegitimate relationships with uh, Lot and his two daughters. And these nations came from that kind of a situation and God's curse was upon them. For in this mountain, here it is, verse 10, For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as the straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. Sometime... You look into those two verses and get them the real root meaning of that. You'll find that it pictures Moab as if they were in, uh, as a straw is trodden down for the dunghill. That they're in a pile of manure trying to swim through it because of God's judgment resting upon them. That's all I'll say about it. But verse 12, And the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall be shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. So the final ruin of Moab, and Moab represents all who oppose God, as she opposed Israel in the past. Think of what's going to happen to nations that oppose God and God's people. You know, I don't have time to go into all this that I have. But let me just say this in closing. In Isaiah 54, I believe it's verse 17, the Bible says, No weapon. God's people are a choice people, you know. Israel, as well as God's chosen people, the church and, 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 God, and Christians, it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. It says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. That's a pretty promising thing, that no weapon is going to bother you. Said so in Romans chapter 8, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. He doesn't condemn us. 